Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you wondering if that small extra space in your house or apartment will work for a woodworking shop? Do you have trouble finding or interpreting older woodworking books? Does the thought of designing your own project intimidate you? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 43 of the show for February 6, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure and head on over to the patron post page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that'll come out at the end of the month. So the cabin update for this month, uh, for this week, doesn't uh, doesn't include too much. We ran the uh, propane line recently and uh, got that all finished after a couple days of uh, fighting and, and finding leaks in the uh, pressurized system. So not gas leaks, we just pressurized it with air just to, to test the system and see if we could uh, find any leaks and ended up finding a couple. And then, of course, you know, being black iron pipe, having to... Uh, undo connections to fix leaks and then uh, reconnect things so iron pipes kind of a pain to work with but uh, we finally got it all uh, sorted out and the uh, lines are all in place and pressure tested and solid and nothing's leaking anymore so we are uh, ready to go so I'll have uh, heat in the future garage shop so I got some feedback from Bill Anderson after last uh, after the last episode after episode 42 um liam had a question on finding bow saw blades for uh, an 11 inch bow saw blade um in episode 42 and uh, i had mentioned that i wasn't aware of any but i got some uh, feedback from bill anderson and if you if you're not aware of, if you've never heard of bill anderson uh bill has been on um uh, on the Woodwright shop several times, do a diff, couple different shows, uh, and he also teaches workshops, uh, a lot of different workshops, one of them which is on bow saw making uh, at the Woodwright school. So um, Bill wrote in to say that, uh, you know, he, he teaches workshops at the bow saw, in bow saw making at the Woodwright school, and uh, they're made in an early 19th century style with tapered uh, brass bow saw pins. He sells the pins on his website, which is edwardsmountainwoodworks.com. Um, but he says a, a good friend of his, sawmaker Tom Callisto, who can be found at winwardwoodworks.com, um, he makes the, the webs or the blades for those bow saws um, to Bill's specs. And, uh, but he'll make webs or blades for bow saws of any size, teeth, branch, etc. So... Um, Liam, if you're looking to get yourself some 11 inch long blades to fit your bow saw, um, check out windwardwoodworks.com. Um, and Tom will apparently make you a blade in any size that you need. So, uh, thanks Bill for uh, sending in that feedback. So let's get into this week's questions. And our first one comes from, uh, Joe Leonetti. Joe says, thanks for the update on your woodworking basement versus external shop location. 
working in the basement now doesn't preclude you from deciding to build a shop later. It certainly does not. Uh, and that was part of the decision making that went into it too, is that, um, you know, if, I change my mind down the line. I can always still build uh, that freestanding shop. So uh, he says, out of curiosity, is working in a small corner of the upstairs or on a four season porch an option? So I would say 100%. Yes, absolutely. It's an option. Um, there are plenty of folks who work out on porches that are not necessarily four season um, and they work some of them work year round um, and some of them just work seasonally out there. Um, if you are familiar at all with my old shop in New Jersey, um, you can probably still see some pictures of it on my old um, Logan Cabinet Shop uh, blog, what's what's left of it, um, as well as on my, my older YouTube videos, you can see uh, videos of my old shop. Um, that's essentially exactly what I did. My workshop back in New Jersey was in, I guess, what could be called a spare bedroom or spare office space. Um, it was a seven foot by 13 foot room that was attached to our family room. Um, and in fact, it didn't have any, uh, any heater or air conditioning vents in that room. It had one small window, um, but it was just a seven foot by 13 foot space. And, uh, and I made it work and it worked really well for, uh, for a hand tool shop. In fact, it's it's been one of my favorite shops that I've worked in so far, um, you know, just because it was it was climate controlled, it was convenient, um, and I think that's that's an important thing with a, a workshop um, is is the convenience factor. You know, if you've got to bundle up or grab an umbrella and you know walk across your property to get to it, um, you know, a lot of us are going to find reasons not 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 to bother to go out there you know if your shop is not heated um you know or if it's if it you know has to warm up before you're going to go out there you know shops that are attached to the house have that convenience factor um so that there's a couple of things that i see as as being very important in the shop and one you know the convenience factor is a big one uh, if you've got to drive somewhere to get to a rented building or if you've got a you know, walk across your property, you may, you may, you know, find reasons not to go and not to, not to get out in the shop. Um, the other thing I think that's important in a shop is it needs to be an inviting space and that's up to you. Um, what makes the shop an inviting space, but you know, for me, um, you know, I like finished walls. I like, um, you know, lots of light, um, natural light preferably, but you know, even if I don't have the, the natural light, um, I like it to be a finished space. You know, I don't want to work in a dark, um, damp, you know, just, you know, uninviting space. Um, you know, and I'll find reasons not to go in there and, you know, may, you know, maybe you won't, maybe you don't care about such things. Um, but you know, to me, that's what really is going to make a shop. Not that, not necessarily the size of it. Um, but you know, the convenience of it, and the and how inviting it is, how how you set it up, and how inviting you make it, um, because the more inviting that space is, and the more convenient it, that it is for you to go to, I think the more you're going to go to it and work. Um, so to me, you know, a, a a basement, you know, basement's great if you can finish the basement and put some walls up and lots of light, even better. Um, 
small corner, you know, of your upstairs, you know, in a small extra bedroom or a four season porch, absolutely, you know, will work just fine. Uh, you know, just find what works for you, what's going to give you the most convenience, what's going to allow you to get out there and what's going to encourage you uh, to go and get some work done. So our next question comes from, and I hope I pronounced this right, Hernan Cornell. Um, Hernan says, I was just listening again to some of your older podcasts and on uh, episode four, you talk about old books and the vast knowledge that they can bring to a woodworker. I have to say that I've tried to read some of those, but I always end up not knowing which ones to read or how to get it because I live in Buenos Aires and buying physical books as opposed to digital is a challenge from where I live. So what do you think about creating a section of your podcast where you can regularly visit some of those books and relay to us some of the useful information found in them? It may also be good to point us to some online resources like Google Books and even share some info on where to buy the physical books for those inclined to do so. Thank you for your great podcasts and videos. Keep up the good work. So, um, I don't know. So I don't know that it'll be a regular segment, um, but I do think it's a good idea, um, and I, I will take the opportunity to go ahead and um, and bring up some old books from time to time, and you know something useful that can be found in one or or multiples. Um, and where you might be able to um, to find those books. So today, I actually I do have a recommendation, and I'm I'm gonna start with, um, and I'm going to, and and it's because this has come up in numerous locations on the interwebs before. Um, so I thought it would be something interesting to talk about, um, and that's the history of the foreplane, uh, F O R E. So there there was always you know there's been a lot of confusion and and in recent years um there's been a lot more light shed on the foreplane and what it is um but there are still folks who either are just misinformed or um you know whatever and and they're they have a different idea of about what a foreplane is and i think part of the problem is that um, when the Stanley Rule and Level Company started making the Bailey-style metal bench planes, they called their number six a four-plane. Um, and it's if you've ever used one, they tend to be quite large. They're they're 18 inches long, which is not not too long for a four-plane. Four planes are typically between 15 and 18 inches long, so they got the length right. Um, the width of that plane is pretty wide. And the blade width is pretty wide. It's about two and three eighth inch blade, I think, which is a little wide for a four for a typical four plane, as we're going to describe and um, and talk about in a minute. Um, but the the main problem with it is it's super heavy. Now, um, but they called it a four plane, and and in my opinion, Stanley's um, description of that number six as a four plane is nothing more than marketing. Um, they were at the time that they were, um, introducing these metal planes, the term four plane, you know, was probably still in somewhat common use. So they decided to call that a four plane and try, you know, to be able to market that. Um, it never really did that well as from what I can tell. Um, we don't see as many number sixes as we do number fives and number sevens or number eights for that matter. 
Um, and they, they just, just doesn't seem like they sold that as well as, as some of the other models, um, which to me is understandable because, um, in my view, it's a little short for a joiner and it's a little heavy for a four plane. Um, and I think a lot of old, um, traditional woodworkers probably agreed with that and therefore didn't really use it as it was intended or as it was called as a four plane. So, um, you know, and there are folks who even think who who will say that the four plane, you know, that it's not the same as a jack plane. You know, if you look at the number six, it's a short joiner. It's not a jack plane. Well, the number six makes a great short joiner. It does not make such a good four plane or jack plane. Um, and there is historical evidence to suggest or flat out say that the four plane and the jack plane were the same thing. So what are some of those historical references? Well, one of the first ones that you'll find is um, in, in Joseph Moxon's book, uh, 1703. And Moxon, actually, he wrote about the foreplane in his section on joinery. And you don't see, you don't hear any mention of the jack plane at all in the section on joinery. However, if you go back and you read through the section on carpentry, in Moxon's book, he does mention the jack plane. And in that section, he does essentially come right out and say that the jack plane is the same thing as the four plane. Um, the carpenters call it a jack plane. The joiners call it a four plane. So that's one reference. Um, there is another reference in an even earlier book that was written by Randall Holm. And the book is called the, the third book of the Academy of Armory and Blazon. Rick, uh, written in 1688. Um, and in chapter nine of that book, Randall Holm uh, explicitly states that the, he says the second sort of plane is called the four plane and of some, the former or the coarse plane, because it is used to take off the roughness of the timber before it be worked with the joiner or smooth plane. And for that end, the edge of the iron or bit is not ground upon a straight as other planes are, but rises with a convex arch in the middle of it and is set also more ranker and further out of the mouth in the sole of the stock than any other bits or irons are. And then he goes on to say the jack plane called so by the carpenter is the same that the joiners called the foreplane. So there's a couple of references right there. And, and, so to your point, Hernan, that's one of the things I think we can get from these old books um, or is clarification on things like that. So uh, so that's one right there. And, uh, I, you know, I hope that'll get you started in terms of finding these books. A lot of them can be found um, just with a Google search, not necessarily through Google Books. A lot of them are often uh, digitized by university libraries. So if you do a search for, you know, Joseph Moxon mechanic exercises, PDF, you will almost certainly find somewhere on the internet, someplace where that book has been converted into a scanned digital PDF that you can then download. Um, similarly, Randall Holmes book, um, probably the same thing. Um, I have, I know I personally have copies of, uh, a PDF copy of Joseph Moxon's book. I have a PDF copy of, um, Richard Neves book. 
um, which is another one on, uh, I forget what it's called, the city and county country purchasers, builders, director, or something like that. Uh, and it has a lot of, it's, it's essentially a giant encyclopedia or dictionary of different tools and things like that. So um, you can find these books by going to, uh, just going to Google and doing a Google search for, you know, Randall Home Academy of, of Armory PDF or Joseph Moxon Mechanic Exercises PDF. Peter Nicholson, the Mechanics Companion PDF, um, and you'll find these these PDFs. Um, I personally have PDF copies of all the ones that I can't find hard copies of. Um, I just actually got rid of my copy of Peter Nicholson's uh, Mechanics Companion because Megan Fitzpatrick, the um, previous editor of Popular Woodworking Magazine, who now runs her own company called Rude Mechanicals Press, just put out a hard copy version uh, of Peter Nicholson's um, The Mechanic's Companion, and, and it's a and fantastically done uh, reprint of that book. She put a lot of work into scanning and uh, and cleaning up the pages and, and the plates. So um, there's one that you can get for a very, very reasonable price. So uh, we'll do another another book uh, or another couple books in uh in another show but uh, thanks for the suggestion and i hope that gets you started hernan so our last question for today comes from david socks david says in your youtube video on making the base of your english style workbench you say at the beginning when drilling to create the mortise that you turn the handle 22 times to get to the correct depth what is the depth do bits with differently spaced spiral cutters require a different number of turns or revolutions so I can't remember off the top of my head what that depth was. I want to say it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of an inch and a half. Um, but to answer your question more directly, do bits with differently spaced spiral cutters require a different number of turns or revolutions? Um, it's not so much the spiral flutes on the upper part of the bit. It's the lead screw. So auger bits have a, a at the tip of the bit, they have a, a screw, threaded screw section called the lead screw. Um, and that screw serves to pull the bit through the work so that you don't have to put a ton of downward pressure on as you're uh, working the bit through with the with the brace. All you have to really worry about is turning. You don't have to put a ton of downward pressure as long as that lead screw is tuned up well um, and doesn't clog. So lead screws are are pitched obviously just like um, just like a modern screw. And it's the pitch of that lead screw that dictates how quickly that bit will be pulled into the work. So for example, if you have um, a lead screw that is pitched at 16 threads per inch, what that means is that you're going to have to turn that bit 16 full revolutions in order for it to bore a one, in a one inch deep hole. So what I will typically do is is kind of I don't usually measure the screw pitch though you can there are um, there are gauges thread pitch gauges that you can get that'll tell you what the pitch of that thread is um, so you can measure that or you can put a ruler up against the the threads and just count you know how many threads are in that uh, in that lead screw maybe in a quarter inch of it or a half inch of it. And, uh, and that'll tell you how many threads per inch you have, and that'll tell you how many times you have to turn that bit to get to one inch. So what I'll do is when I'm using these types of bits, I'll start the lead screw, and as soon as the 
um, as the cutting edges start cutting out between the uh, between the scored the 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 outside spurs. Um, as soon as the cutting bits start engaging, the cutting edges start engaging. That's when I start to count, and from there I count however many turns I need to get to the depth that I need to go. And that's the beautiful thing about those auger bits is that you don't have to have depth stops or anything like that. You can simply count turns and know um, about how deep you're getting. So um, it's a really good way to be able to bore holes to consistent depth very quickly. So yeah, just. Uh, figure out how many threads per inch your lead screw has, and that will tell you how many times you need to turn your your auger bit in order to get to the depth that you want to go. So that's going to do it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on the basics of design. Um, and I think this is going to be, you know, obviously this is this is really going to be more of an, uh, an opinionated discussion because um, truly, you know, good design is really in the in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, there are plenty of designs, whether it's furniture designs or artwork or what have you that, um, you know, that I think are just absolutely hideous. But uh, obviously, someone thought that it, that it was a good design, and um, you know, maybe you could argue people more knowledgeable than me because some of this stuff is in uh, is in museums and art galleries and and whatnot. So uh, you know, maybe my design sense uh, isn't so great when you uh, when you ask some people. But um, you know, what I'll talk about today are, are things that I consider um, when I'm designing a new project and you know to I find that it's one of the topics that it it kind of intimidates a lot of folks you know there are actually quite a number of woodworkers regardless of experience level that they won't build anything unless they can get pre-printed plans for it they don't do any of their own designing you know the only things they build are things you know that they can find plans for in books or or magazine articles or or whatever so um, what I'm hoping to do today is dispel a few myths and, and give you the confidence to try doing some of your own designing. So the, uh, the first thing I want to do is to, um, to, to bust a myth. And that is that, uh, a design of your own has to be a hundred percent or, or absolutely unique. Um, and I think that's kind of bogus because for the most part, there's almost nothing in design as in woodworking that hasn't already been done. Maybe it hasn't been done in the wood species or the material that you're thinking about doing it. Um, you know, but just about everything has been done before by someone at some point in history. So I don't think we can ever claim a design as a hundred percent our own. Um, most design, good and bad, um, is, is influenced and inspired by something else, whether that be something in nature, um, something in a museum, something in a book, in a store, whatever. Um, there's always some inspiration somewhere. Nothing is 100% absolutely unique and never been done before. So then 
if you're going to design a piece for yourself and not work off of uh, pre-printed plans or pre-designed plans, how do you go about doing that? Where do you start? Um, well, my start is typically to look at old furniture and old architecture. And it doesn't have to be old in the sense of, you know, antique, just older. You know, if it's something that's already been built, it's older than what I'm building now, right? So look at past furniture, something that, that's that's already out there, um, whether it's contemporary designs. Um, you know, I, I hear um, the guys that in, uh, in one of the other woodworking podcasts, and I don't remember which one it is. I think it's... Um, I think it's the Woodworkers podcast, maybe. Um, um, yeah, the the uh, the uh, wood, yeah Woodworkers podcast with um, Phil Morley and uh, and I forget everybody's name that's on that show. Anyway, um, uh, Ramon Valdez and and uh, yeah, and, and I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting the third host. I apologize for that. But, um, you know, they, they talk a lot about Ikea, you know, Ikea being crap in terms of furniture, but they have some really good designers, right? Their stuff sells really well to the contemporary crowd that likes that type of style because they have really good designers. The quality of the pieces may be crap, but the overall look and design of a lot of it um, is what a lot of people are looking for. So, um, you know, you can look in a lot of places for design. Look in, look at Ikea, look at Pottery Barn, look at high-end furniture places, look at antique furniture, look at building architecture. Um, there, there are so many places that you can look for, for design inspiration, even outside of the furniture world, you know, just looking at at art, looking at, looking through magazines, looking at cars and looking at, uh, you know, trees and nature and, um, look at, at automotive designs and what they're doing with automotive interiors. And there are just so many different things that you can, so many places you can find design inspiration for a project. So don't limit yourself, you know, to just looking for plans. Start with something that is going to inspire you. The next thing that I'll do is to look at the overall proportions of the piece. And this is before I start thinking about wood. It's before I start thinking about joinery. It's before I even really nail down the specifics of the design. Am I going to have two drawers or three drawers or tapered legs or turned legs? Or Before I start thinking about any of that, look at proportions. Because the overall proportions are going to... Um, they're really going to 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 uh, to guide your future choices on how things are going to look. How is this going to be a tall, skinny piece? Is it going to be a short, wide piece? Is it going to be a square? Um, so there, you know, you want to kind of look at where the the piece is going to sit in your house or in your client's house um, or office or wherever it's going to to eventually live. And look at that space and look and then think about what kind of shape is going to fit best in that space. You know, if you've got a, a corner of a room where you're going to put a piece, 
you may not want to put a short wide piece in there. It might be something that's going to be a little bit taller than it is wide. Um, maybe it's going in a corner where a square shape, you know, a square profile is going to, to look the best. And then once you figure that out, you want to think about the proportions of the sides. So if it's a square, obviously it's one to one. So there's not much to think about there. Um, if it's rectangular, what is, what is going to be the proportion of the height to the width? You know, you can get into trouble. And again, this is all subjective, but um, if you start to get too severe on the difference in proportions, um, you know, think about things that, you know, like four to five, three to five, uh, two to three, and, and start looking at those and just draw out a bunch of rectangles with a two to three proportions and a four to five. And, um, what did I say? Two to three, four to five, three to four, um, you know, maybe two to seven or two to six and, and start, um, start coming up with all of these different proportions. And one of those is going to click with you when you kind of, you just look at it, right? Draw out these different rectangles of all different sizes on a piece of paper. And one of those is going to click with you and you're going to look at it and say, yeah, that looks really good. That's a nice proportion. Um, because if you start to get too tall and too narrow, it starts to look kind of tippy, like it's going to tip over. Um, on the other hand, if you start to get really wide and really short, it just, maybe that doesn't quite look right. So again, it depends on what the purpose of the piece is and the space that it's going in. But um, you want to look at how the proportions of that piece fit into the space and how it fit in, how it fits in with the other things around it. Um, and if you want to, if you want more on proportions and design and, and looking at things in this way, um, definitely check out um, George Walker and Jim Tolpin's book by hand and eye. It's been out for quite a number of years now. Um, but it's a really great introduction to designing with proportions and how easy it can be and and how easy it is to to learn to do this. Um, you don't have to be born with a natural eye for design. You can train yourself um, and and actually learn to do it. And um, George and, and Jim's book by hand and eye is a, is a great place to start. Um, once you've got your proportions down, the next thing that I like to do is, is think about what it is that I want to highlight, what it is that I want my, the, the viewers of this piece to, to see or to focus on. So let's say I'm building, um, I don't know, a, a dining room table. When my guests are, you know, when I walk into that room or when, when my dinner guests walk into that room, what do they, what do I want them to see? Do I want the joinery to stand out? Is it highly figured wood that I'm looking to, to showcase, uh, maybe contrasting woods, or do I have a bunch of carving or inlay? What is it that is going to draw the person to, to look at what, what is somebody going to be drawn to look at on that piece? Obviously the proportions are going to be the first thing that grabs them, but once, you know, something that's well proportioned, once that comes into focus, the details start to come out. What are those details? What What is it that you want to highlight that you want to draw people's attention to? One of the things that I like to do is to, um, in my personal design, is to avoid too much competition between elements. So what do I mean by that? Well, 
I'm, I'm, I use figured wood very sparingly and you know, what I consider appropriately. Um, for example, if I'm building a, a dining table, let's say I'm doing like a nice tapered leg, um, you know, simple aprons, like a, a simple farmhouse table, something, something along those lines. I want to avoid putting figured wood in the legs and aprons of that table. I'm going to use really nice, relatively straight grain for those. One, it tends to be stronger because you don't have lots of grain run out and grain changes, but it's also um, less noisy, right? It, it, those straight lines flow better. The straight lines of, of a nice tapered leg and a nice straight apron, those straight lines are going to flow better with straight grain timber. If I'm going to add some figured wood, some highly figured wood to that table, I'm going to showcase it in the top itself. I'm going to keep it out of the aprons and legs and I'm going to showcase it in the top. Um, similarly, if you're doing maybe a cupboard or a cabinet with, um, with some raised panel doors, go into the typical uh, home store or kitchen kitchen store, or maybe just look at your own kitchen cabinets in, in your, uh, in your own kitchen. What you're going to find is they pay absolutely no attention to grain whatsoever. And you'll see that there's probably a bunch of cabinet doors with rails and styles with some really wild grain and cathedral grain and figured grain. And it stands out and just looks but ugly. Then maybe you'll see on another one of your kitchen cabinets, there might be some really nice straight grain in the rails and styles of the doors. And that flows much better. It looks much better to have this nice straight grain running through these narrow rails and styles. And if you've got some wild figured grain or cathedral grain, you highlight that in the raised panel, not the rails and styles. So that's what I mean by, um, you know, using figured wood sparingly and appropriately. Um, other areas where I try to avoid competition between uh, between elements. If I'm going to do some carving, uh, I'm working on. A, I just started working on a, another new commission now, um, and it's going to have some carving on the aprons. And that carving, I want when I do that carving, I want that to be done on wood that has the absolute plainest, straightest grain that I can find because I don't want the carving to compete with figured wood. Because if you've ever carved through a board with figured wood, you'll see that it becomes muddy and blurry and it, it just, the carving kind of gets muddy looking. Um, the elements, the individual elements of the carving don't tend to stand out like they do on a board with nice straight grain. So, you know, choose your elements, choose what you want to stand out and then simplify everything else and let it kind of blend into the background. If you're going to do some carving, do that carving on a board with, you know, if it's got, if it's got some grain, if you're carving on oak, like I'm going to be doing, for example, maybe make those panels riven or, or quarter sawn at least so that you've got nice straight kind of, you know, un, un, non-figured grain that's not going to compete with the carving. Um, same thing if you're carving, you know, in cherry or walnut or mahogany, try and get some straight, simple grain stuff, not something with some wild flame or, or figure in it, because that's going to compete with the carving. Um, if you're doing inlay work, veneer work, um, and you're going to be inlaying some stuff, you may want to, you know, soften 
or or kind of push the field to the background and so that your your inlays are highlighted. You don't want to typically do a lot of crazy um, compl complex inlay on a highly figured background. Maybe sometimes in some cases it can be made to look good, but in most cases when you're trying to highlight a complex inlay, you usually want to push the background, simplify the background so that the inlay stands out. And the best way to do that is with a simpler, plainer grained background. So that's what I mean by avoiding competition between different elements. Um, and then one of my, uh, my own personal rules too, is to avoid incorporating too many different wood species into, uh, into a single project. I tend to limit myself to two or three, not including my secondary woods. So, you know, if I'm building a chest of drawers, I may have, let's say I'm building the chest out of cherry. Um, and then my secondary wood might be poplar or pine, you know, for drawer sides or, and drawer backs and bottoms and things like that. And then maybe I've got some pegs in there somewhere and maybe I'll, I'll do those in ebony. Um, not too many different colors, not too many different contrasting woods. And if you go with a bunch of different woods in a single piece, try to keep the colors from contrasting too starkly. Um, you know, some people can make projects that contain both walnut and maple look good. It takes, in my opinion, some special skill to be able to do that. When you're, when your woods are at an extreme contrast to each other in color, um, it can be very difficult to make that piece come together. Um, the, the two starkly contrasting woods tend to really kind of stand out from each other. Um, so it can be hard to, to create that cohesive, um, that cohesive look when you're, when you have that much contrast between different woods. I tend to try to keep the contrast a little bit more subtle. Like I said, maybe like a cherry and ebony, the cherry's going to get darker. The ebony's black, um, walnut and ebony works well. Walnut and oak, believe it or not, actually is quite a nice, um, contrast walnut and cherry. Um, when you start to get into maple, um, maybe maple and cherry might not be, um, not, not be too bad. Again, maple and walnut, that can be a tough one. Um, in some pieces, it looks quite nice. In other pieces, it looks kind of loud and, and like I said, non, non-cohesive. It, it just looks, um, it just doesn't look right to me. So, um, you need to be careful trying to, um, have two woods with too large of a contrast and color between each other. So, um, so that's something that I tend to try to, to keep in mind. So those are just some, some basics. I know today's kind of a, a, a short show and a, and a short topic, but what I really wanted to do was get you more thinking about how you can, um, start to incorporate your own ideas into projects instead of just working from somebody else's plans or, um, you know, magazines and books, you know, use those things for inspiration, but don't be afraid to come up with your own ideas and, and keep in mind that the only one who really truly has to be happy with the final result, um, is your client or you, if you're the client. So, um, 
you know, don't be afraid of failure. Um, again, it's just wood. It grows on trees. So um, there's no reason if a, if a design just doesn't work, scrap it, use the wood for something else, burn it, whatever. Um, but get out of that box of working from other people's plans and, and magazines. And, you know, uh, by all means, use them for inspiration, but try to come up with some of your own ideas and, and your own designs. That, to me, that's really one of the, the fun parts of woodworking is being creative and coming up with some of my own designs. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this. I am extremely grateful for all of the support you have provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because the show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt043. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.